Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 18. I'm going to read the whole chapter. This is going to be our introduction to the introduction on Judges. But it, it, it helps to uh, prime the Old Testament pump. To, I don't know if you're familiar with Judges, but there's all kinds of... Well, if Netflix were to make it into a series, you wouldn't let your kids watch it. We'll put it that way. <laughs> um, and so how do... Well, Abraham and, and this narrative of relating to Sodom and Gomorrah is going to help us. How does God see the nations? How does God see sin wherever sin may be found? How do we think about our neighbors? And so I would encourage you as you get ready for next week to re- read the book of Judges on your own. And uh, as we're going through it, please, please send me any questions you might have uh, so that, that it can be also be helpful to you to better understand what God has said. But this is, this is equipping us to do what Jesus has called us to do. He sends us among our neighbors, among the nations, uh, to make disciples and to be discipled. So let's, let's read this, God's Word. And the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you might refresh your, may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And she said, he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, And my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and to see whether they have done altogether 
according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose there are 40 there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and revealed to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you call us friends through faith. You've befriended us to to make to be known by you and to know you and make you known. And so I pray that would happen this morning, that you would show us how this points to Jesus and we would respond to his praying for us by praying for others. For that to happen, we need the Spirit to come and change us. So send your Spirit so that I might speak clearly, truly, what is here and also to change our hearts to give us the desire to do what you have commanded us to do we pray this in jesus name amen so i'm going to focus this morning on abraham's prayer but it helps to know the context that abraham as a man of faith prayed for people that are more wicked than we probably have been confronted with people that we would not invite to our dinner table. (laughs) He prayed for Sodom. He prayed for Gomorrah. The people who are actively immoral. And uh, what I think is helpful as we jump into this is we live in a culture of outrage. That when we see somebody or something that we do not agree with, we quickly scream at them and say, you have no place among us. (laughs) And what Abraham is going to help us do is deal with people who uh, do things that are wrong in a way that is godly, in a way that is helpful, in a way that may even move you towards your neighbor, towards your enemies, rather than away from them. And so, just to make you mad, to help you understand what it looks like to pray for Sodom, I am warning you, this is your trigger warning. (laughs) Uh, 
Sodom was a part of a culture that was just like ours that did not value the life of children. And uh, so it's hard not to think about New York State and, and the recent abortion law that was passed so that you know, a little baby in the womb could be killed right up to the point of birth for any reason, any reason for the health of the mother, the emotional health, the physical health, the psychological health, family reasons, or even the mother's age. Um, that makes us angry. In Virginia, not to be outdone by New York, uh, I'm sure you heard some of the conversations. One of the, the governor, I think it was the governor, but it was talking about the possibility of a baby being born and them caring for the baby and after the baby. And while the baby is outside of the womb, the parents decide whether it lives or dies. He's talking about bringing back and approving of infanticide, something that Christianity had eradicated, has always confronted. Abraham prayed for Sodom. Uh, and it's actually the law of the land. Right? The federal law has the same thing. If you read about Doe versus Bolton, it has the same language. New York is imitating what Supreme Court declared to be legal in 1973. So we get angry. I should pause and say, if you have had an abortion, you're going to see Jesus forgives that. And we're, we're going to show you how. Abraham prayed for the forgiveness of those who killed their children. Uh, you, can, you can read in the prophets how, it, how unfaithful Israel was sacrificing children and they compared that to a Sodom-like act. So I'm not making this up, even though it's not clear in our text. Um, how do you respond to stuff like that? I mean, our culture shows us how, to, how they respond. I'm going to use Lady Gaga as the public theologian that she claims to be. Right. Lady Gaga, for those of you who don't know, she's uh, one of the best-selling music, musical artists of all time. And she wrote a song called Born This Way, which has helped pave the way to normalize homosexual relationships in our country. And one of the things that makes her angry is anyone who would say that is immoral. And so in the last week or so, a couple weeks, it came out that our vice president, uh, his wife, works at a Christian school that believes in just tradition, what the Bible teaches and what the church has always taught, going all the way back to creation, that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's how God designed it. It's the traditional, historic, orthodox, biblical belief. And in the middle of her concert, she was so worked up, this is what she said, to preach morality. She said, you are wrong. And you are the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian. She says, I'm a Christian, and I know what Christianity is about. We bear no prejudice, and everybody is welcome. So you can take all that disgrace, Mr. Pence, and look yourself in the mirror, and you'll find it right there. As she looked out at what she said is immoral, <laughs> without prejudice, of course, as she says, Mike Pence isn't welcome. But all she knows is how to be angry and say, you don't belong here. And so the point is this, is, this is difficult. How do we, as we interact with our neighbors who believe different things that we do, who have a completely different system of morality, who don't think biblically because maybe they've never even read the Bible, how do we interact with them when we're called to love our enemies, when we're called to pray for them, when we're called to introduce them to Jesus? 
These are the people that we're called to relate to. And so that's what Abraham is going to help us do, help us see ourselves and see our neighbors, to see our enemies, see those. That's strong language, but to see what God calls his enemies and how to pray for them. And so let's, let's look at our text. <coughs> Abraham shows us what it, what it means to be in a relationship with God, and this is the, what motivates him to pray. It, he prays out of his relationship with God. He is befriended. And so that's the first point. Abraham is befriended by God. And so you look at the passage. It was an ordinary day for Abraham. He's minding his own business in the desert, just hanging out by his tent, doing what you do in the desert, which sounds wonderful right now because it's been so cold. <laughs> and he's, he's sitting in the shade, and all of a sudden these three men appear. And it's this beautiful picture of biblical hospitality where he goes from lord of his household to servant of his guests. And he rushes up, he welcomes them, he offers them a meal, um, and refuses to sit down until they're comfortable, until their, their bellies are full. Right? There's nothing like curds and milk in the middle of a hot day to hit the spot. It must be an acquired taste. But the conversation that follows this is, is astounding. Because you have two men that apparently are angels, and one of the men is identified as Yahweh, the Lord, God. And he starts talking with Abraham. And so the picture you have is Yahweh, the Lord, eating a meal, a covenant meal, a meal with Abraham. Right, the picture you have is God coming from heaven to earth on the ground uh, to eat. And so I think this is just a dim hint of the covenant meal of friendship that would come that we're going to celebrate when I'm done here at the end of the sermon, that when God makes a covenant, when he enters into a relationship with a person, uh, the way he seals it, the way, the way he helps you experience it and grow in the reality that he has called you his friend is to eat and drink with you. That's what Abraham is, Abraham is seeing God's friendship. He's hearing it. He's hearing words. He's tasting it. He's smelling the reality of being God's friend. And so this is a confirmation of that. And then God lets Abraham know what he's going to do as Abraham's friend. So it's good to stop and ask <coughs> uh, two things. One, why would God call Abraham a friend? Is Abraham worthy? The chapter before, chapter 16, Abraham, in an abuse of power, impregnated, impregnated his, his wife's servant. Right? Abraham is not an innocent man, and yet he's been forgiven and being welcomed in. And he's being declared God's friend here. If you look at verses 18 and 19, it shows you what, what it means to be God's friend, where God says, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that he's my friend and that all the nations of the world shall be blessed in him. Seeing that he is chosen, uh, that he is known. There might be a little note in your Bible. And uh, see what that little word means to be known, to know Abraham, is the biblical picture of friendship. Because when God says, I have chosen or I have known Abraham, he's saying, I've known everything about you. I know you're a sinner. And I've come along and chosen to be in relationship with you. 
Right? It's top down. It's the king of kings, the creator, saying, you are mine. I know everything about you, yet I come alongside you. That he was, this is very intimate language. Whenever this word no, to know somebody is, is littered throughout the Bible, and it's often used between a man and his wife. Right? It's the, this picture of intimate knowing. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, and so it's this idea of being known down into the depths and yet being declared accepted by God. God says, Abraham, you are my friend. I know you. And the biblical picture of friendship here is that God says, because you are my friend, I'm going to let you in on my plans. I'm going to let you in on the secret of the cosmos, the mystery. I'm going to tell you my will. And I'm going to invite you to participate in it. Because that's what friends do. They let you in on what they think, on what they care about, on what they love. It's an open-hearted trust. God is doing that with Abraham, as Jesus does with us. He says, "I, I call you my friends. For I've made known to you everything my father told me. He's letting you in on why you are here and what you are here for. And so the, the plan that like, Abraham is let into is what do I do with the wicked? What do I do with Sodom? Right? If, Abraham, if you are going to be the one through whom I bless the entire world, help me relate to the entire world. <laughs> I want you to be brought into the process of of blessing the entire world. And so Abraham now, as you go down the text, Abraham's going to stand as the representative, the advocate for the wicked in the presence of God. And so you look at (coughs) Abraham, God's friend. This This is the purpose of God's friendship, that you would know God and make him known among the world. Abraham modeled what Jesus called us to do. And so you're left with, Abraham, how are you going to relate to the wicked? How are you going to relate to people? How are you going to represent sinful people before a holy God? Or if I could put it this way, what should God do with the people who are violent, who kill children, uh, who hate outsiders, who are willing to... Do racist things, as you would read in, in Genesis 19. They're cruel to outsiders. They, they don't practice biblical sexuality. They oppress the poor. How should God deal with people whose sin is real? The outcry is great. Should he forgive? Just let people off the hook? Or should he do justice? And so that's the second point. God's friends pray for their enemies. If you are declared God's friend... Abraham shows us that we pray for our enemies. And so, just to be clear about Sodom here, what is, what's the deal with Sodom? Sodom in the Bible is like a, a synonym for the worst of the worst. It's the ancient sin city. Right? It's, it's the Vegas of, of the Middle East. Uh, and it's, over and over again, it's just used as an example of, of how bad things can get if they, people ignore God. Right? And, and actually in the Bible, most often it's used to describe the church. <laughs> it's used to describe God's people in the Old Testament much more than just the pagan nations. 
So just let that sink in. When, when God says you need to change, he says, let me show you Sodom. This is, this is the mirror. But when you get to verse 20, all right, this tells us what is, what is going on in Sodom is that there is such injustice, people are crying out for help and God hears it. There's an outcry. And it's, it's basically people who are weeping because they've been abused. Because the rich have taken their land and they have no food to feed their children. And the rich don't, don't care. I mean, if this is the city of man where everybody is out to get what they want for, their, for themselves and there is no principle of my life for yours. It's my life for me at the cost of your life. This is Sodom. And Ezekiel 16 says that the root of all of the evil of Sodom is this thing called pride, the desire to do what I want when I want it because it feels good. And so you can read in Ezekiel 16.50 where it says, describing Jerusalem, but it says, just like Sodom, they had pride, they had lots of food, they were prosperous, but they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did an abomination before me, so I removed them. So the picture of Sodom, just to be clear, is, is people who don't care about God, they do what they want. It's the definition of sin, doing what I want, not what God wants. And it's, it's a bit like the, I don't know, you probably didn't see the movie, but it's a bit like the movie The Purge. There was uh, all kinds of movie trailers for it, where everybody has one night to do whatever they want, and it's ugly. Right? And in that city is one righteous man, Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew. He's an influential person. He was a leader in the city, it says. He sits at the gates, which means he's one of the, the judges. He's one of the public officials. And uh, Lot's morality has, apparently has no effect on his neighbors because the poor are still trampled on, the weak are abused. Right? The Me Too movement should have started back then. It's brutal. And so Abraham is called to defend these people puts our neighbors in perspective, right? This could be worse. But we've got to wrestle with that. What does God do with people who ignore him and destroy their neighbors? Right. I know it's really easy to read this, and this is what our culture tells us to do. My God of, would never destroy a city like God destroyed Sodom. He's a God of love. But what, what do you do with a God who says, I don't see any evil, I don't hear any evil, when I hear people crying because the strong are just trampling on them and the blood, their blood, their innocent blood, cries out from, for justice? What do you do with a God who ignores that? See, a God of love who hears no evil and sees no evil is not a God of love. That is a God of apathy and a God who is not just. See, for God to be God as he is, he says, I am a God of love, I am abounding in steadfast love, but I don't let the guilty go free. I'm a God of justice. We need a God who stands to defend the weak. And so God calls Abraham into this process. And so look, God invites Abraham to do this. 
This is how God's response to the wickedness of Sodom. Look at how the holy God responds to this. He says, Abraham, right? He comes and invites him in. And then Abraham, what he does, he's standing next to the Lord. And then it says this weird thing, like Abraham draws near. And it's actually a legal term. It's like a court has been beginning and Abraham is now stepping up right next to God at his right hand to be an advocate, to be a lawyer, to be the defense lawyer for Sodom. That's what's happening here, right? And so while the angels are down, not presuming guilt, but investigating the actual guilt, there is a trial going on, and Abraham is the defense lawyer. It's pretty astounding. And so he is God's friend called to pray for the wicked. And how does he pray? And this is, this is really helpful for us. He prays very big prayers. Meaning, his prayer list is bigger than just his family and bigger than his immediate needs. He's actually praying for the nations. Because if it was me, and I know my family member is about to get nuked, so to speak, you know, some kind of attack is going to happen in a major city, and I know a family member is there, I'm going to pray, God, get them out, save them. My concern is much more for those I love because I am related to them. And Abraham's concern, as God's friend, is to be concerned for the nations. He prays a global, universal prayer, which is instructive. He doesn't say, I don't care what you do with Sodom, just save Lot. He says, would you spare the city for the sake of a few? I mean, how gracious is that? The violent city who would gladly kill his nephew without any guilty conscience. Abraham's concern for the city as a whole. For the sake of the righteous, would you spare the many? It should help, help us as a church. When you think about your family members, when you think about your neighbors, when you think about your prayers, it's calling us to, uh, to love what God loves. And it's, it's bigger than us. To pray for our neighbors, whether they are in the church or outside of the church. I think that's the application. Second, Abraham prays big prayers, but he also prays humbly because he comes to God in the middle of this, this haggling, so to speak, and he says, Lord, I'm just dust and ashes. I mean, when was the last time you started your prayer that way? God, I'm dust. Got him ashes. What you're supposed to hear is like a hyperlink to Genesis 3, which is saying you're created, but because you've sinned, you will return to dust. That we are created from the dust. That's what a human being is. You belong to God. It's a humbling thing. We are not the Lord of our own lives. Abraham's coming in humility and saying, I am created I submit to you as my creator. That's who you are. You and I are uh, we're, we're walking dustlings that God has given life. Right? We're just walking dust bags, so to speak, that have been formed and fashioned into human beings. And then the second part of that is this is a really humble prayer because Abraham is saying, I know I don't deserve to, to say these things. I don't deserve to talk to you. I'm dust. 
I'm living in the world where Adam sinned, and I'm just like him. I have sinned. I am dust. I'm not worthy of your friendship, and so I have to ask you to graciously hear my prayer. Don't destroy me, because I'm wicked like them. That, I think that's the application here. Abraham has this deep awareness that I am just dust. Here for a moment, speaking with the eternal. Which gives me pause when I pray. Because when we think of, hey, God called me his friend, you know, we, as friends we high-five each other, we come in um, without that same measure of awe and terror and respect and fear. You know, we're, we're called, we are graciously called God's friend, but we're called to come in as, as dust that God has animated and said, I've called you for this. Right. So, we're called to pray big prayers for our neighbors. We're also called to pray humble prayers because it's humble prayers that help you pray for people who are wicked. Right? Because moralistic people, people who believe they are good simply because they're doing the right thing, they don't have a category for being dust and ashes. Because I'm really good-looking dust. <laughs> and that dust over there is really bad. And that should just, you know, fade away into nothingness. Abraham prays as somebody... To say I'm dust is a confession of sin, and this is what makes him compassionate towards Sodom. To, to even can think of sparing them. The only way you can have a powerful prayer life and just see your neighbors as God sees them is to see yourself as dust and ashes because it starts to go to work against your prejudice and your natural tendency to say, ah, there's no way I'm like those people. Right. You turn and say, I can't believe God would call me his friend to advocate in his courtroom, <laughs> in the holy of holies, to pray for my neighbors because we love them, not because we despise them. Third, Abraham prays God's character, and this is the, the, the hardest part of the prayer. It's strange, because you can feel it while you're reading it. He just keeps, you know, he's, he's praying, praying down from 50 to 45 to 30 to 20 to the 10, and it's like he stops short of the goal line. And you're saying, well, what was that all about? And what Abraham does is he teaches us how to pray. He's saying, you, you ought to pray wrestling with God's character, and what we know about God are two things. He is a God who is just and holy, and he will not let the guilty go free. Abraham knows this. He calls them wicked. And yet at the same time, he also knows that God is willing to forgive. He's experienced that firsthand, so he's trying to figure out how to pray for them, how to wrestle with God's character as he's standing in God's presence. He's saying, and he's, he's working out his theology as he goes, it's what it sounds like. And it, it is an odd prayer, but basically what he's saying is, God, you love righteousness. Because you love people who do the right thing so much, would that rightness, that perfect life, that good living, be enough to spare, and spare is another word for forgive, the wicked, to let them live? All right. So Abraham knows God loves people who do what is right. He loves righteousness. This is God's character. He lo it's like a parent. When my, 
when our kids do something that we have taught them to do without being prompted to do it, and they come and right, we praise it. It's a beautiful thing. It's something we enjoy. We enjoy when our kids are righteous. Um, whether it would be asking for forgiveness, or confessing something they did wrong, or cleaning up their room without being told. Right. See, God loves righteousness. And Abraham is praying that God's delight in what is good would be enough to cover and hide what is ugly so that they might be spared God's judgment. Can the goodness of a few spare the many? And so it's like as Abraham is slowly realizing how much God really does enjoy people who do right, a human being who loves him and loves their neighbor. And that righteousness is enough to move God from anger and justice to delight and forgiveness. That's, that's Abraham's prayer. Right. And so the pattern, what it's getting you ready to see is you can, there needs to be somebody in God's courtroom who prays for our wickedness to be forgiven based on God's love of righteousness and obedience. Meaning that if you're God's friend and you look at the wicked, right, you're called to pray that God's delight and righteousness would forgive them and that they would want it. <laughs> right? And this is completely different because we te- our, our world just rages at people who don't agree with our immorality. We blast them, say, get out, you don't belong here, and Abraham is praying for Sodom. Do what is right, God, would you forgive them? And of course, as you go down, you're wondering, why did Abraham stop at 10? Because it feels like he should go down to 5, down to 1. It's like he got freaked out. Maybe he was just too aware of his own dustiness, his own sin. But all we know from the story is, is the righteousness of four. Right? Lot and his family, they weren't enough to save the city. And so we're left just with a giant question mark. Who is righteous enough to spare the wicked and to convince God to forgive the wicked? Centuries later, Jesus shows up. And what's interesting is, as he calls everyone a sinner, in fact, he starts going after the people who think they're good and saying, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, he's in Jerusalem saying, you are just like Sodom. You're worse than Sodom, actually, because if, if they saw what you saw, which is me, your creator, walking in your presence, healing, forgiving, teaching, they would have repented. Right. And so what happens is, is you have this picture of, of Jesus, God's friend, the son of Abraham, who is that one righteous person whose life is so righteous, so good, so beautiful, because he loved God from his heart, because he loved even the worst, even his enemies. It was enough to convince God to forgive the many, to forgive you and me. Because Jesus, out of love for God and love for Sodom, he didn't just pray for his enemies, he showed himself righteous by going to the cross and dying for his enemies, for you and I, so that he can be resurrected, 
ascended into heaven, go into God's courtroom and stand right next to God like where Abraham was. And he is now our priestly defense lawyer saying, God, forgive them. Not for their sake, but for my sake because my righteousness has covered them. They are forgiven. It is an amazing thing. Jesus is your defense lawyer who protects you against your own wickedness so that God would welcome you in as his friend in order to send you out to pray for the nations who are wicked like you were and still are sometimes. (laughs) So this isn't pray like Abraham. It's saying you first and foremost need to be prayed for by Jesus to enjoy his friendship so that you will see I am dust and ashes, but God has lifted me up to sit right next to Jesus in the throne room to pray for our neighbors who desperately need protection from the the righteous justice of God because he's our creator. So this is the good news of the gospel that we're going to taste and see here in a moment, that we have a holy God befriending sinful people like us. And he says, repent and follow me. And what's really encouraging, I'm going to end with this quote, is this is all at God's initiative. This wasn't Abraham's idea to be friends with God. It wasn't something he was pursuing. He was minding his own business, and God came alongside him and said, here, take the gift. And so a guy named F.B. Meyer says, it's ever sweet to rest on a love that's not dated in time, but rooted in eternity. Because one feels like God's love didn't originate in anything great about us. And because it hasn't been rooted in anything great about us, God's love can't be turned away by any sudden outbreak of our own sin and depravity. It did not begin because of what we were, and it will not continue, or it will continue in spite of who we are, because we have this praying priest for us, his name Jesus, who promised, I will never leave nor forsake you. You are my friend. Now go. Let's pray. <coughs> uh, Father, we, uh, we heard the beautiful plan and grace of the gospel that you call us friends. And so now as we hear that, uh, help us believe it and how, help us to taste it as we come to the table. If there are those here who don't know if they're your friend through faith in Christ and they're wondering that if you came to their house to see what they are like, if you would forgive them, I pray they would run to the Savior for refuge, for he is safe because he is our priest who loves us. So give us a taste this day of of the goodness and kindness and the compassion and forgiveness of our Savior, our defense lawyer, our protector. In Jesus' name, amen.